calling all lovers of mystery and fans of a good story. If you haven't already heard me talk about June's journey, you're in for a treat. It's time to don your detective hat in this free hidden object mobile game that delves into the captivating journey of June Parker, a self-proclaimed detective on a quest to unravel the mystery surrounding her sister's untimely death. In June's journey, you get to play as June, deciphering clues and unveiling secret plots within thousands of beautifully illustrated scenes. And did I mention it's set in the glitzy 1920s? New chapters are added weekly, so you will never run out of new thrills to uncover, and you can also personalize and decorate your very own Orchid Island where the story takes place. How sharp are your detective skills? Find out when you download June's Journey on your Android or iOS device, or play online via Facebook games. Your detective journey awaits. Welcome to the serialized audiobook, Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy. Written by number one New York Times bestselling novelist, Scott Sigler. Performed by the author. Contagious is also available in print, ebook, and unabridged audiobook. For links to purchase any version, visit scottsigler.com slash contagious. One sixteen p.m. Bravo Positions, Part 2. Margaret crouched at the base of a small abandoned building, watching dust roil through the air around her. A block away, the Globe Building had just exploded and collapsed, sending a thick dust cloud rolling through the abandoned lots. She wondered if the cloud carried the contagion, but she and Clarence were safe in their suits. The sticky tape on her hands would keep the glove cut sealed a white trash version of BSL for safety, but it worked nonetheless. Clarence moved along the sidewalk. His right shoulder stayed close to the graffiti-covered brick wall, but he didn't touch it. She had warned him about sliding against anything, even leaning on things for cover should he wind up in a shootout. The tough hazmat suit could still tear if dragged across any jagged metal. Helicopters soared overhead. Guns fired. Explosions made the ground vibrate. War had come to Detroit. Clarence peeked around the corner. He watched for a few seconds, then reached back and gently pulled her hand, urging her forward until she could see for herself. Down the block, on the other side of the intersection, stood yet another abandoned building. A corner unit, battered front door opening out in an angle toward the intersection of Franklin and Riopel. Light gray, two stories, boarded up windows. It looked like an old restaurant or a bar, maybe a corner store from decades past when this area had more buildings than abandoned lots. That's where the gunman took the hostages, he said. What's in there? I don't know. If the gate is gone, Ogden has to know it's over, that he lost. He filled the building with hostages so we can't drop a big fucking bomb on his ass. Or maybe they're trying to convert those people, infect them. Maybe, Clarence said. Maybe some of them but it makes more sense to have regular people as hostages. Otherwise, they have no negotiating power. What do we do now? We gotta get help. Listen, you watch where the soldiers went in, and don't move. Ogden's headquarters blew. Our guys had to cause that. I'll slide around the other side of this building. The gunman can't spot me from there. See if I can flag our guys down and get them over here. Clarence slowly ducked away from the corner. Margaret knelt and watched. Every 20 seconds or so, a car drove through the settling dust, full of people hunting for a place to hide. When they saw her or Clarence saw their biohazard suits, the cars instantly sped up to get away. The faces inside looked terrified, shell-shocked. Nothing she could do for these people, not without making a scene, making herself visible to the gunman in the building across the street. She silently prayed that all the cars would just keep driving. Then... Coming up Riopel from the direction of the river, a motorcycle. A squat one, American and loud, kicking up a low cloud of the still-falling dust. A man driving. Someone behind him. Someone small. Keep going, Margaret whispered. Don't stop here. Keep driving. The motorcycle stopped right in front of the hostage building. Margaret tensed. She couldn't let those people go inside. They got off the bike and Margaret saw the small person was a little girl with curly hair. Blonde. 
Chelsea Jewell. And the man, Colonel Charlie Ogden in street clothes. They ran into the building. Margaret whipped behind the corner, out of sight. Clarence was already coming back from the other side. He wore a wide smile, an expression of near disbelief. She grabbed his arm. I just saw Chelsea Jewell. His smile widened. Are you sure? Yes, I'm sure. It's her. Why are you smiling? He actually laughed. I don't know. Too much death, stress. Something good finally happens now I can't stop grinning. Go take a look. You won't believe who's coming this way. Margaret traded places with him. Still moving slowly, cautiously, she walked to the other side of the building and looked around the corner and understood Clarence's joy because she felt it too. Coming across an empty, abandoned city block, running through the settling dust, she saw Dew Phillips, Perry Dossie, and soldiers carrying machine guns. The Cavalry. If you went back in time, say, six weeks, to a point when Margaret Montoya stood in an apartment parking lot in Ypsilanti, Michigan, scared for her life because a gigantic, burned, and brutally wounded infected man named Perry Dossie was trying to tear through her biohazard suit, his wild eyes staring, his spit and blood smearing her visor, his cracked lips screaming, open that fucking door and let him in. If you could go back to that moment and tell her there would come a time when she would feel infinitely happy and relieved to see his face, she wouldn't have believed you. You could have bet her on that. Bet her with the same bill that traded hands so frequently between Clarence and Amos. And you'd have won 20 bucks. Perry, Dew, and maybe 25 heavily armed and grim-faced soldiers came running down Woodbridge Street, the cavalry to the rescue. The men fanned out, working like the fingers of a hand, some pointing guns across the street at the boarded-up windows of Chelsea's building, some darting across that same street to the building next to hers, backs against brick walls, slowly inching to the corner, some continuing down the street, probably to surround the place. Dew and Perry ran right up to her. Margaret, Perry said. We got the gate. Are you okay? He hugged her, suit and all, picking her right up off the ground. I'm okay. I'm okay. She hugged him back. She couldn't believe how good it was to see him. Dew scooted to the corner, peeked around, then ducked back. Clarence said you saw Ogden. And Chelsea Jewell, Margaret said. Perry's smile faded. A look of hatred filled his eyes. Margaret instantly thought of the dead, angry stares of the infected victims she'd had on her autopsy table. And hostages, Clarence said. About 15 of them. And at least three gunmen armed with body armor, M4s, sidearms, and grenades. There could be more already inside. Dew looked Clarence up and down. Human condom, eh? Clarence nodded at Margaret. Blame her. Hell, I wish I had one right about now, Dew said. Margaret, what happened with Sanchez? You figure this thing out yet? The sensation of relief vanished, replaced once again by feelings of failure. No, I didn't, she said. Try not to get infected, because there's still no cure. Dew and Perry nodded. How about Gitch and Marcus? Dew asked. Dr. Dan. Clarence shook his head. So, we've got losses, Dew said. Let's make them count. Clarence, take Margaret and go to the football field at Martin Luther King High School, about a mile up Jefferson. You can't miss it. Murray dropped a Margot mobile there to set up an infected triage. There's also two Ospreys on the ground. If things turn dicey, you get her out of here. I'm standing right here, Dew. Margaret said. Clarence isn't my keeper. Yes, he is, Dew said. And he's getting you out. Have some of your men take her, Clarence said. I'm staying to finish this. Why couldn't Clarence just shut up and leave? Hadn't he done his job? Hadn't they sacrificed enough? She wanted out, and she wanted him with her. Otto, you will get the fuck out of here, Dew said. Your mission is to protect Margaret, and I want her gone. Clarence shook his head. But do. Shut your broken tooth mouth. You've got your orders. Do you mind if we go ahead and save the fucking world? Perry, you go with them. 
Perry Dossey actually laughed. A dark laugh. Something he might have let slip back in a kitchen filled with three dead bodies. Fuck you, Dewey, he said. Chelsea and I need to talk. Dew turned to face Perry, tilted his head up to make eye contact. Perry's filthy blonde hair hung in front of a face smeared with grime and reddish dust. You will go now, Dossie, and that's an order. How many times do I have to tell you, old man? Perry said. I'm not a soldier, and your orders don't mean dick to me. I'm getting that girl. The only way you can stop me is to shoot me, and this time I'll shoot back. With your own gun. Perry raised his eyebrows and lifted a pistol, not pointing it at Dew, more of a show-and-tell gesture. Sir! A big black man, almost as big as Perry, ran up to Dew. Sir, someone is sticking a white flag out the front door! Son of a bitch, Dew said. Let's see if we can close this out. Nails, have half your men target the second floor windows, the other half the ground floor. I don't want to kill any hostages, but I'm not in the mood to be shot at either. Got it, Nails said, then started barking orders. Margaret had never heard a human being that loud. Dew looked at Perry again. I suppose if I tell you to stay here, you'll just ignore me? Perry nodded. Dew sighed. Fine, fuck it, let's go. Perry's slow breath steamed in the cold air, carried away by the breeze coming off the river. The helmet felt cold on his head, but his flak jacket trapped his body heat and made him sweat despite the freezing temperature. He gripped the 45 tightly and followed Dew around the corner. Dew carried an M4, barrel angled toward the ground. Jets still screamed overhead, their engine roars echoing across the cityscape. Far up ahead, the Rensen continued to burn like a tall, smoldering black torch, a column of greasy smoke angling up and trailing across downtown Detroit. Helicopters hovered all over the place, probably waiting for more of Ogden's men to show themselves. Dew and Perry walked toward the building on the corner. The front door was open just a little, enough room for a stick with a white shirt tied to it to wave back and forth. He saw whiskey company men all over the place, guns trained on the open door and the windows. If someone opened fire from inside the building, an instant bloodbath would ensue. Dew stopped 20 feet in front of the door. Perry did the same, a step behind Dew, a step to his left. We're listening, Dew said. The door opened, and Chelsea Jewell walked out, carrying the flag. Had it been anyone else, a soldier, a grown-up, some twitchy finger might have opened fire, white flag or no. But the image of a seven-year-old girl with beautiful blonde curls and an innocent face instantly made fingers ease off triggers, if only a little. To anyone else she looked innocent, but Perry saw deeper. He saw a nightmare, something dark and self-serving, something happy to destroy anything that didn't give her what she wanted. He didn't care what he had to do, how far he had to go. Chelsea Jewell would never leave this place alive. She walked ten feet from the door, far enough to stand in the debris-strewn, potholed street. Perry stepped forward. Time to end this. A hand on his chest. Dew pushing him back. Perry wanted to shoot her, but he would back Dew's play. We want to negotiate, Chelsea said. My mommy needs help. Tell all your men to throw out their weapons, Dew shouted, loud enough so the men in the building could hear him. Chelsea stood there, motionless save for the white flag still twitching in her little hand. Guns flew out of the building's broken windows and clattered on the sidewalk. Two came from the ground floor, just one from the second. Was that all Ogden had left? Three gunmen? More silence. Where's Colonel Ogden? Dew asked. He'll come out now, with my mommy, Chelsea said. She's hurt. She needs help. Perry heard Nail's bellowing voice. Squad one, move up! Soldiers of Whiskey Company stepped out from cover and moved forward, forming a wide half-circle around Chelsea. She turned and walked back through the door. Perry started to follow her inside, but Dew's hand on his chest stopped him again. 
She slipped inside, out of sight. Only a few seconds of tense waiting later, a man walked out. Ogden. He reached back and pulled something through the door. Something big, like a two-legged hippo. Gray. Wearing pants? Wait. The man wasn't pulling that thing. That thing was walking. Margaret watched an obscenity walk out of the building. What the fuck? Clarence said. What is that? It was a woman. A woman horribly bloated to insane proportions. Her arms were swollen to the point where the skin stretched out thin and semi-transparent like a balloon, or like the casing of a sausage sizzling away on a grill. Her stomach distended like a cartoon character. Her breasts looked massive, misshapen like beach balls. Her face, puffed up to the point that her eyes were nothing more than stretched, squinting slits. The woman couldn't see. That's why Ogden led her forward. Stay where you are, Dew screamed. Ogden, stop or we shoot! Guns rattled as soldiers took aim. Ogden stopped. So did the woman. With a smooth, confident motion, Ogden reached into his pocket, drew out a grenade, and pulled the pin. He jammed the grenade into the woman's bloated folds. Dew fired. Ogden's head jerked to the side and he dropped, lifeless. Next came two long seconds, a pregnant pause. Margaret and the soldiers stared at the obscenely bloated woman standing next to Colonel Charlie Ogden's falling body. Someone started firing. A dozen M4s suddenly erupted, bullets punching into the monstrosity that had once been the beautiful Candace Jewel. Each bullet kicked out a gray jet like the spray of a miniature fire extinguisher. She stumbled back a step, arms comically pinwheeling as she fought for balance. And then the grenade went off. A bang, no flash. A cloud of gray peppered with red, fleshy shrapnel. The cloud expanded, billowing past Dew and the men who had surrounded Chelsea. It thinned as it spread, a translucent sphere growing more and more transparent. The soldiers turned to run, but the cloud engulfed them before they made it three steps. It blew past them, seemingly hungry for the next man in line and the next. The soldiers slowed, then stopped. Hands went to throats, to eyes, to ears. They scratched at themselves. They clawed. They screamed. They fell. They writhed and kicked. The cloud billowed past Margaret, tiny spores covering her airtight suit. Tears rolled down her face. This was it. This was the final stage. There had to be millions of the spores. Sanchez had caught the disease from a tiny puffball, maybe a thousand spores landing on his hand, and even though he'd washed the hand immediately, it hadn't mattered. The stuff penetrated, almost on contact. Every one of these men, including Dew, including Perry, was already infected with a dose at least a thousand times more concentrated. She looked away from the men, looked at the air around her. The pollen-like dust drifted away, a grayish cloud carried by the wind. The spores were already starting to fall, but only slightly. They might travel a mile or more before they finally came to rest. A mile would carry them into downtown Detroit, even beyond, spreading them across the tens of thousands of panicked citizens trying to hide from gunfire. Spores were far smaller than bullets, far more dangerous. And from those spores, there was no place to hide. People stumbled out of the house, the hostages, clawing at their eyes and throats and ears, running in any direction, every direction. It wasn't just the wind that could spread the contagion. These people would take it much farther. How many of them would leave the city in a panic, find a car, a way out, and just start driving? How many would travel three or four hours before they fell asleep? And how many of those would change into another gas bag, like Chelsea's mother? She saw other civilians stumbling out of buildings where they had hidden, hands rubbing desperately at eyes, digging at exposed skin. They ran in a panic, aimlessly scattering in all directions. Clarence, does your heads-up display say anything about suit integrity? He said nothing. 
He just stared at the carnage. Clarence! Uh, no. Nothing about suit integrity. Thank God. He was safe. We have to get out of here, she said. We have to get to the decon trailer at the football field. Can you drive that motorcycle parked in front of the building? Yeah, but what about Dew? Perry? We have to help them. Margaret swallowed. Dew writhed on the ground. Perry just lay on his back, barely moving. She wanted to go to them, but the cold, mathematical part of her brain knew the score. We can't help them, she said. Do what I say and do it now. If you don't, the world is fucked. Clarence looked at her, then looked back at the men crawling across the ground, at the people running into the city. It seemed to click home for him. He closed his eyes tight. Tears dripped down his cheeks. He opened his eyes, grabbed her hand, and ran for the motorcycle. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am thrilled to invite you to Rachel Uncensored, my podcast where I get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. From personal stories to hot-button issues, we cover it all. New episodes drop every Wednesday, so make sure you tune in on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored. People helping people. Get up, Perry. I need you. Coughing. Dust. The taste of smoke. The taste of dirt. The taste of, don't think about it, of scorched flesh. In his mouth. More coughing. But not just from the brick and dirt and smoke and wood and the, don't think about it, the scorched flesh. Coughing from something deeper, way down in his lungs. Something that burned. Perry knew. He felt stabbing pains all through his skin, his face, in his muscles and eyes. They were inside him. It's time for you to join me. It was her again, in his head. He'd thought the gate was the most beautiful thing he would ever experience. He was wrong. As rapturous as that gate was, it paled in comparison to the voice. Come to me, Perry. Get me out of here. So beautiful. He'd heard her before, but he'd been hundreds of miles away. Now there was no distance, no jamming, no grayness. Her pure, raw power raged through his soul. Perry stood and stumbled down the street. Men were all around, the brave guys of Whiskey Company, rolling on the ground, coughing, spitting up blood. They were all totally fucked just like Perry. And there, lying in the middle of the street, Dew Phillips. Just relax and let it happen. You'll be stronger now. You'll be like me. Come to me, Perry. Protect me. Perry shuffled toward Dew. The man was on his back, mouth opening and closing. He saw Perry and managed to smile, then shrug. Dew knew the deal. Sorry, kid he said, his voice a hoarse croak. Looks like we're not going fishing after all. Kill him! Dew's face screwed into a pinched mask of agony. Perry knew what Dew was feeling because he felt that same pain himself. The difference was, Perry and Payne were long-lost buddies. Dew's wave of pain seemed to fade for a second. He blinked rapidly, then coughed, bloody foam splattering onto his lips. Kid, get my radio. See if Margaret got out. Perry nodded. I will. Kill him. Do it now. I'm proud of you, Perry, Dew said. Maybe you don't have testicles, but you sure got balls. Dew Phillips actually laughed, or started to. Then he coughed up a little blood. Perry saw his forty-five lying on the ground the one that had belonged to do for 30-some years. Kill him! Thank you for everything, Perry said. And I'm sorry about this, but I have to. Perry put the forty-five against Dew's forehead. Kid, what? Perry closed his eyes, kept his hand perfectly still, and pulled the trigger. 
Then he turned away and walked toward the building. Chelsea had called for him. God had called for him, and he had to obey. Ride to Live The Black Harley Night Rod special roared down the sidewalk of East Jefferson Avenue. Shell-shocked people ran out of the way, only too eager to flee from yet another potential threat, a loud-as-hell motorcycle carrying two people dressed in black hazmat suits. Bodies lined the sidewalk and street, the corpses of people who had resisted the hostage roundup of Ogden's men. Clarence wove around those bodies, around cars that had driven onto the sidewalk and crashed into buildings, and around a few people wandering aimlessly, clawing at their eyes, their faces, their arms. Margaret saw traces of gray dust everywhere. As they drove, the dust thinned until she saw no more of it. They'd driven out of the puffball's expansive blast radius. Now the only spores would be on their hazmat suits. Even with the parking lot-like traffic jam, the Harley moved along at a brisk pace, its obscenely loud engine a long-distance warning to anything that might stand in its way. Within minutes, they saw the high school football field on the left, sitting on it, a Margot Mobile and two Ospreys. An icon illuminated on her heads-up display, wireless connection. Her suit computer had picked up the communication net from the new Margot Mobile. This is Dr. Montoya, she shouted as Clarence turned sharply on Mount Elliot. Prepare for immediate evacuation. Patch me through to Murray Longworth on this frequency right now. Open the airlock door, then everyone out of the trailers and onto the Osprey. Get it warmed up. We're out of here in three minutes. Do not approach me. I am contagious. A block later, they reached the football field's main gate. A guard had been there, but she saw only his back as he sprinted for the Osprey. Clarence drove the roaring motorcycle through the gate, onto the field, and stopped at the Margot Mobile's airlock door. As soon as the bike's engine died out, Margaret heard Murray's voice in her helmet speakers. Margaret, what's going on? She and Clarence sprinted for the airlock. She'd been running forever, it seemed, and every last muscle screamed in protest. She entered, and he shut the door behind them. The instant the air pressure equalized, she opened the door to the decontamination chamber. Margaret, Murray said. Answer me. It's contagious, she said through heavy breaths. She ran to the controls as Clarence shut the second airlock door. She hit the controls, and the room filled with the bleach and chlorine spray. We know it's contagious, Murray said. No, you don't get it. She raised her arms and slowly turned, letting the mist wash over her. It's airborne. It replicates inside people, fills them up like a a puffball until they burst. Okay, how do we contain that? Where's Dew? Dew is infected, Margaret said. So is Perry. All of them are. There's nothing we can do for them, Murray. And if we have any hope at containing this, we need to act right now. Dead silence on the other end. Murray, did you hear me? Yeah, he said quickly, but in a voice that oozed total exhaustion. What do you want us to do? The mist shut off. Clarence opened the airlock door that led back to the entrance. Margaret swallowed. You have to. Her voice lodged in her throat as she followed Clarence. He shut the door, then ran to the final airlock. Margaret? Murray said. Talk to me. She felt tears pouring down her face, but because of the suit, she couldn't wipe them. Option number four, she said. You have to use option number four. Dead silence. Otto pulled her onto the football field and started taking off her gloves. When Murray spoke, his voice sounded thin, old. There's got to be another way. Clarence lifted her feet one at a time, took off her shoes. Margaret shook her head. There isn't. The fireball will crank the temperature up so high it will kill all the spores for three or four miles around. They've probably spread a mile already. You have to do it. Now! Another pause. She disconnected the helmet from her suit but left it on her head so she could keep talking to Murray. She started tearing off her suit. Clarence did the same with his. A new voice in the speakers. Margaret, this is President John Gutierrez. Do you realize that you're asking us to drop a nuclear weapon on Detroit? Of course I fucking realize that. I know exactly what I'm asking. You fucking moron. Margaret couldn't stop the tears now, nor could she stop the sobs. She stepped out of the suit. 
She wore nothing but scrubs and the helmet. Otto grabbed her hand and pulled her toward the Osprey's open rear ramp. How much time to evacuate? Gutierrez asked. You can't evacuate, she said. If you don't do this right now, it's going to be too late. Look how it converted Ogden's men, how fast it took over, and what it made them do. The spores have already spread through downtown Detroit. Thousands are infected. The infected will radiate out of the city. These people are terrified. They're going to get as far from Detroit as they can. You can't stop them. Some of these will turn into these gas bags full of spores. We just watched it happen. The infection will spread everywhere. People will be converted into this collective organism. They won't be human anymore. If it spreads past Detroit, we are fucked. Humanity is fucked. You have to act now, Mr. President, or it's out of our hands for good. Where are you? Gutierrez asked. We're getting on the Osprey at the football field. She ran up the ramp. It started to close behind her. Seven men were inside. They stared at her and Clarence and instantly shied away, shuffling toward the front of the passenger section. Margaret, Gutierrez said, his voice quiet and cold. Are you sure, absolutely sure, this is the only way? I, I am. Another pause, then Murray again. I'm telling the Osprey pilot to take off fast, he said. You should be out of range when it goes off. What are the exact target coordinates? Margaret stared out for a second. All of Dew's men were gone. No one to paint the target. There was one way, though, to make sure the nuke hit the right spot. Can you still get a signal from Dew's sat phone? Yes. Drop it there. Perry meets Chelsea. Perry's body boiled inside. He and Payne were old buddies, but his old buddy was making itself a little too welcome. His second infection, it seemed, would be just as much fun as the first. He walked through the front door of the abandoned building. Two of Ogden's men were inside. They'd recovered their weapons. The spores didn't seem to affect them. They let Perry pass. Come to me, my protector. He walked. The two men followed him, one behind each shoulder. Chelsea was on the second floor. He could sense her, feel her beauty, her power, her divinity. He walked up old stairs that creaked under his feet. General Ogden said we'd have another hour or so before they shut down the city, so we have to hurry. We need a car. Then we can go for a ride. He reached the top of the stairs. Down the hall, standing in an empty, trash-strewn room of an abandoned building, he finally saw her. Chelsea, and his heart ached. I'm afraid I destroyed the gate, Chelsea. You have destroyed many things. No gate. What will you do? We're like a new person now, a super organism. Isn't that a neat word? Can't you feel the crawlers working through your body? They will change you even more, Perry. We will escape Detroit, and then you and I will make the whole world play together. He walked up to her. His feet seemed heavy, each step like deadlifting a thousand pounds. Every nerve screamed with agony. She could do it. She could take over the world. Chelsea Jewell could be God. You understand now, don't you? You understand how silly it was to fight all this time? Let's get a car and go get some ice cream. Perry smiled down at her. So tiny, so fragile, so beautiful. He snapped his right arm back into the soldier behind him. A pile driver elbow smashed into the man's face, crushing his left cheek and fracturing his right orbital bone. The man on Perry's left started to raise his M4, but Perry pointed his 45 down and fired twice. Two bullets shredded the man's foot into raw meat. The man shivered, dropped his gun, and instinctively reached for his foot. As he bent down, Perry put the 45 to his head and pulled the trigger. Perry swiveled to the right to face the man he'd elbowed. Two shots, both bullets ripping through the man's chest. Before the body even hit the filthy wooden floor, Perry turned back and reached out. His big right hand locked on Chelsea Jewell's throat. He lifted her. She weighed nothing. 
Stop it! No. No, Perry, no! Bad Perry! She didn't look scared. She didn't look evil, either. She looked like a spoiled child. A child who did whatever she wanted. Took whatever she wanted. He squeezed a little harder. Fear crept into those angelic blue eyes. The realization that maybe she didn't control him. You have to do what I say. I told you to kill that man, and you did. You didn't make me do it, Perry said. I couldn't let him wind up like me. I had to help him. Footsteps rushed up the stairs behind him. Perry turned to face the open door, Chelsea still held out in front of him. The last gunman sprinted down the hall, M4 raised. He skidded to a halt when he saw Chelsea held in the air like a shield. Perry aimed and fired. The bullet hit the last man dead center in the forehead. He took one step back, dropped his gun, then lifted his right hand, weakly, as if he wanted to touch Chelsea's hair one last time. The man fell backward. He didn't move. Perry looked at Chelsea. So beautiful. He understood that man's dying gesture of love, of affection. Why would you kill me, Perry? Hate tinged her ice-cold eyes. Cold, like the eyes of a hatchling. You're not like anyone else. I can see into your memories, Perry. No one accepted you for who you are. But with me, you can be what you were born to be. A killer. Maybe that's what I was born to be, Perry said. But it's not who I am anymore. It is, and you know it is. Why help them? What have these people ever done for you? One of them was going to take me fishing, Perry said. Then he shot Chelsea Jewell in the face. Dew's sat phone. A soldier handed Margaret a sat phone. She just looked at it. Clarence took it and answered. Agent Otto here. The voice on the sat phone, crackling but clearly audible. It's Murray. I've got Perry. He wants to talk with Margaret. Margaret's body sagged in her seat. Perry was still alive? Not for long. Okay, she said and took the phone. More crackling than the deep voice of Perry Dossie. Hey, Margot. She fought back the tears. If she cried too hard, she couldn't speak. Hey, she said. Are you... Are you on Dew's phone? Yeah, Perry said. I got Chelsea. The voices have finally stopped, but I don't think I'm doing so good. I've got those things inside me. It hurts. Bad. I think they're moving to my brain. Margaret, I don't want to lose control again. You won't, she said. They won't have time. A pause. Holy shit, he said. Are you nuking me? Yes. Laughter, cut short by a wet cough, then a groan of pain. Do said I'm like a cockroach, but nothing can kill me. I don't think physics is on my side this time, though. Margaret let out a sound that was half cry, half laugh. Her soul hurt. Clarence with you? Yes, he is, Margaret said. She passed the phone to Clarence. You really are something else, Clarence said. His voice also choked with sobs. Nobody ever been as tough as you. Sorry about those Toby jokes, Perry said. Truth be told, I was just really jealous of you and Margot. I wanted to beat the shit out of something and you were there. I know, Clarence said. It's nothing. Don't fuck it up with her, Perry said. I hope you know what you've got. I do, Clarence said. Trust me, I do. Cool, Perry said. Uh, how long do I have? Murray's voice. About 15 seconds. No shit? Perry said. That's kind of fucked up. A pause. More coughing. Margo? Yes? Thank you for saving my life. B-61 makes bingo. The order came through. Captain Paul Ward asked them to repeat it. They did. Paul said nothing. 
His weapons officer, Lieutenant Colonel Megan May Brakal, sat right behind him. She was one of the few female crew members of an F-15E, and she'd achieved that position by being a team player and never questioning an order. While Paul sat speechless, May also asked them to repeat it. They did so, this time with a bit more force. Captain Paul Ward then did something he hadn't done in his entire military career. He refused to obey. No, sir. No, sir, I will not drop a 10-kiloton B-61 nuclear warhead on the Motor City. Fifteen seconds later, Air Force General Luis Monroe came on the line. As if that weren't enough, President John Gutierrez joined in as well. One hell of a conference call. Monroe explained, quite calmly considering the situation, that if Paul and May disobeyed a direct order, it was an act of treason. Gutierrez added some motivation of his own. If Captain Paul Ward did not drop the bomb like right fucking now, he would be directly responsible for a disease spreading across the United States of America, a disease that could potentially destroy the country, its people, and if they were really unlucky, the entire human race. Paul and May had no idea how much of this was true. But then again, it wasn't their job to question orders. Their job was to follow orders from any commanding officer. And when those orders came first person from the Air Force's top man and the commander-in-chief, it was impossible to disobey. Paul pulled back on the yoke, bringing the F-15E to 15,000 feet. As he did, the rest of his squadron kicked in the afterburners and headed out. The radio filled with chatter. The Ospreys, Blackhawks, A-10s, F-15s, and every other aircraft turned away from downtown Detroit and flew at maximum speed. Paul and May were alone, about to drop a nuke on America. May fought back tears as she entered the information into the computer. A B-61 Model 4 tactical nuclear warhead is a kiloton range weapon with a dial-a-yield feature. Dial-a-yield allows aircraft crews to change the B-61's output while in mid-flight. As ordered, May set in a yield of 10 kilotons. She set the detonation point at 1,000 feet, armed the weapon, then told Paul that it was ready to fire. He flipped open the covering plate on the nuke trigger. He thought of his three sons back at Mountain Home Air Force Base in Idaho, wondered how many sons like them were down there in Detroit, how many daughters, mothers, fathers, brothers, sisters, nephews, nieces, and cousins, and dogs. How many dogs were down there? His finger gripped the trigger. His hand felt weak. He hoped that maybe, just maybe, he'd have an unexpected stroke and lose the ability to squeeze it. May said, Do it, Paul. He squeezed. He didn't have a stroke. The trigger clicked home. The 12-foot-long B-61 rocket fired, launching away from the F-15E at 750 miles an hour. As the bomb streaked towards the target, Paul went full throttle and shot away from Detroit at supersonic speed. The 700-pound B-61 dropped toward the city. The guidance computer tracked the signal emitting from near the corner of Franklin and Riopelle. The B-61 wouldn't actually hit the ground, but if it had, it would have landed only 20 feet from the sat bone in Perry Dossie's hand. At 1,200 feet, a gas generator fired, ejecting a 24-foot nylon and Kevlar-29 ribbon parachute. In just three seconds, the B-61 slowed from 750 miles an hour to 35. It drifted down until it hit 1,100 feet, where barometric pressure activated a firing mechanism that began a nuclear chain reaction. Detonation. In a millionth of a second, a fireball formed and heated the air to 18 million degrees Fahrenheit, nearly twice as hot as the surface of the sun. This heat radiated outward at the speed of light, expanding and dissipating. Dissipating being a relative term, however, as the heat caused instant first-degree burns as far as two miles away. The closer to the detonation, the worse the burns. Inside a quarter mile of the blast, flesh simply vaporized. Every spore within a mile of the detonation point died instantly. 
Those between one and two miles out lived for as long as two seconds before they burned up in infinitesimally small puffs of smoke. The five-mile-per-hour wind had carried some lucky spores as far as two and a half miles away. Those took almost five seconds to cook, but they cooked just the same. The plasma ball was really the whole point of the nuke, to create instant, scorching temperatures that would kill every spore, and it worked like a charm. The rest of the nuke's effects were a bit of unavoidable overkill. The Renaissance Center stood less than a mile from the detonation point. Star-hot heat radiated down, turning metal, glass, and plastic into boiling liquid. Some of these liquids evaporated instantly, but the building didn't have time to completely melt and burn. The shockwave came next. The explosion's power pushed the air around it outward in a pressure wave moving at 780 miles an hour, just a touch over the speed of sound and twice the speed of an F5 tornado, the most powerful wind force on Earth. The wave smashed into the melting glass, metal, and plastic of the Rensen, 35 pounds per square inch of overpressure, splashing the molten liquid away in a giant wave and shattering the still solid parts like a sledgehammer slamming through a toothpick house. The Rensen's main tower had 73 stories. The four surrounding towers, 39 stories each. Less than three seconds after detonation, all of it was gone. The shockwave rolled out at the speed of sound, losing energy as it moved. It shattered Comerica Park, home of the Tigers, ripping the concrete stands to pieces and hurling chunks of them for miles. In the days that followed, three seats from Section 219 half-melted but still bolted to their concrete footings, would be found in the parking lot of Big Sammy's Bar in Westland, 20 miles away. The curved, white roof of Ford Field, home of the Detroit Lions, caved in like an eggshell stomped by a fat man. A mile outward from the detonation point, the pressure wave smashed any building smaller than 10 stories, broken pieces flying farther outward in a lethal, hurricane-class shrapnel cloud of brick and wood and metal and glass. That same pressure wave picked up cars and flung them like matchbox toys, spinning them through crumbling buildings, each Ford or Toyota or Chrysler, its own whirling missile of death. As far as a mile away, the blast knocked burning cars onto their sides and roofs. Detroit wasn't the only city to feel the effects. Across the river, the fireball scorched most of Windsor. The shock wave tore through the city, leveling houses as far as a mile from the shoreline. Everywhere, people died. The lucky ones, close to the detonation point, evaporated in the initial flash, their shadows instantly burned onto sidewalks and walls. One woman was in the middle of drinking a Coke. The flash vaporized her, leaving a perfect silhouette with arm bent, head tilted back, can in hand. Farther out from the detonation point, you didn't vaporize. Your skin just bubbled as the sudden heat caused the fluid in each cell to boil, expand, and burst the cell membranes. Survivors would later describe the feeling as being dunked deep into a vat of boiling water. Most of those who lived through the initial fireball effects died from the pressure wave or were killed by building wreckage in various car parts traveling at 500 miles an hour. If you lived through all that, you had to deal with second and third degree burns, burning buildings, and dead as far as the eye could see. And if you lived through that, your body would feel the effects of radiation for years to come. The cancer rate in southeast Michigan would skyrocket. The initial blast caused an estimated 58,000 deaths. Another 23,000 died within days as a result of burns and shockwave-related injuries. Combined, the blast caused 81,000 deaths. In the five years that followed, another 127,000 would die of persistent injuries, cancer, and other radiation-related causes. In those years, through all the scandals and congressional inquiries and public outcry, President John Gutierrez, his staff, the Joint Chiefs, Murray Longworth, Margaret Montoya, and Clarence Otto would ask themselves every day, was it worth it? As brutal as it sounded, it was. They had destroyed the spores, killed Chelsea, and brought down the orbital. They still didn't know what was supposed to come out of those gates 
what the angels really looked like, and what damage they might have caused. They didn't know, and thanks to those who gave their lives, they never would. In the weeks after the explosion, as FEMA, Homeland Security, and a dozen other agencies and charities converged on the Motor City and its suburbs to help the survivors and bury the dead, two small, manned submarines began picking up the only solid enemy remains. The pieces of the orbital. 900 feet below Lake Michigan's rough surface, the orbital's wreckage lay spread across the lake bed, a collection of twisted, warped, and broken rubble. One piece, however, remained mostly intact. This object had been engineered to survive such crashes, to endure almost any type of damage in order to ensure delivery of its contents. That particular object was about the size of a soda can. You have been listening to Contagious, book two of the Infected Trilogy, written by Scott Sigler, performed by the author, produced by Empty Set Entertainment. Hey there, it's Rachel Ballinger, and I am extremely excited to invite you to Rachel Uncensored. It's my podcast where I sit down and get real with my friends and celebrity guests, where we talk about all sorts of topics. And sometimes we might be under the influence when we do so. We cover things from personal stories to hot button issues. And it's the only place on the internet you can find an uncensored version of me. It's a side of me that you might not have seen before because it's not the most family or brand friendly. But don't worry, I'm still sort of slightly a decent human being. If you're intrigued, then make sure you check it out. New episodes drop every Wednesday. You can find it on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you listen to podcasts. Trust me, you won't want to miss out on the fun and candid conversations we have here on Rachel Uncensored.